full of firsts as well. I mean, um, you know, making leather boots, but then they were the first company to laminate plastic over uh, over a liner, uh, aluminium buckles, inventing the flex index that people kind of use today. things I find fascinating are the characteristics behind many different brands. Some of them are outgoing and energetic, some are a little bit more laid back. So in this podcast, we look to explore all the different characteristics, not only of the brand itself, its roots, its origins, but the people behind the brand. And is there a bit of a relationship between the characters of the people and the characters of the brand? This episode is brought to you by Hike and Ride, the home of custom-fitted ski boots and where the ski shop comes to your front door. Book your appointment now at hikeandride.co.uk. Hike and Ride, adventure delivered. Hey, what's up, everybody? Phil Gordon here, and welcome to today's episode of the Legends of the Brand podcast. And on today's episode, we have Mark Taylor from Nordica. Now, Nordica is one of those brands that's been around for such a long time. And what's really cool is some of the innovations that Nordica have come up with that are standard on today's ski boots. Well, good afternoon, good morning, and welcome wherever you are. And welcome to this episode of Legends of the Brand. And today I'm super excited to have with us Mark Taylor from Nordica. So welcome aboard. Hi, Phil. Uh, thanks very much for having me. This is, uh, this is a real treat. <laughs> no worries. Well, it's good fun. I mean, obviously, we, we've known each other for a while, and uh, I think it was kind of fun to, to have Nordica on board as well and kind of share your story with everybody as well. I mean, we have chatted, I guess, a little bit in the past, uh, a little bit about Wolf and Grizzly, and I think uh, last year at the Snow Show as well, we, we chatted a little bit about Nordica. Sure. But, but I, I, I kind of feel like we, we, we needed to move our relationship to, to the podcast <laughs> And so we could uh, we could we could talk about Nordica and your story as well. So um, first of all, where whereabouts are you? I mean, I kind of know roughly where you are. You're obviously you're in the UK, but whereabouts are you? Uh, right in the middle. So uh, I'm based in Sheffield. It's uh, it's been about ten years that I've been living here now, and uh, I've kind of now with my business, I'm building it from here. It's uh, pretty central. Handy to go north, handy to go south, um, and then the Peak District's right next door, and it's a really yeah, I love the city. I'm I'm from Manchester, but it's you know it's a great city, really. So I like it over there. Um, well, you, you're saying you're from Manchester, but we're having a bit of a chuckle beforehand before mm. we hit the record button. At, sure. uh, that you know you don't necessarily always sound British, so uh, you know uh, give us can you give us a little bit of a background of that? Because you know what was your really? First... Yeah. <laughs> well, I think really briefly, I, I am I'm a Cheshire boy, like. Uh, quite a few people who've been skiing in their life sadly whether well, that's a good thing or a bad thing and um, so I, I'm from Poynton just outside Manchester but uh, and yeah my, my actual I was trying to think about my first time on snow it was probably sledding in the Peak District somewhere here but then um, and you know my first real time on snow skiing was when I was about six I got taken out to uh, to Austria um, but yeah, the, the accent, which I'll, maybe I'll come into in a little bit, is um, I moved to Canada when I was 18 and um, was young and naive and clearly picked up some of your twang accidentally. Uh, and <laughs> now, now, an I'm little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm a little, yeah, yeah. Now I'm a little mid-Atlantic maybe. Um, but yeah, but yeah, my, my, um, my first real kind of time I remember skiing, it was, it was really hard for me to try and think this through because the actual element of on snow, I sometimes really struggled to remember, which seems a bit mad, but uh, I was also I was six, so I was very young. But um, my my parents, uh, well, specifically my dad, he used to run school ski trips. They were PE teachers. And uh, I got the free space, space along with my brother uh, on the coach to go out to Austria. I think uh, 
was it maybe Eric you were talking to on, a, on a, an earlier podcast? He uh, remembers when he was dealing with a lot of the school ski trips that happened in the 80s and the 90s and all. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of a, a product of that, uh, realistically. Um, so uh, from from going out, the biggest things I remembered was was kind of the coach trip, being with older kids because they were kids from my high school when I was six, seven years old. Uh, just the adventure of it all uh, as much as anything. Um, I really tried to think about the skiing experience, but sadly that one at the time obviously just kind of evaded coach me. trip stared sta- at the, the most yeah. exciting thing. Did, did yeah, the sandwich you, make it to the end of the car park? You know, <laughs> Just the, 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 the kind of, yeah, this whole, I'd never been on a big long journey before and um, having to try and interact with people 10 years older than me, who were still kids as well, you know, 12, 13, that kind of thing. But um, trying to socialize with them um, and at the same time obviously my dad wasn't called dad he was called Mr. Taylor and just trying to you know there was just a lot going on the one big thing I do remember from the first trips it was Saddleback I've been back I've had a few injuries in Saddleback over the years but this one was the most devastating was uh, I went nine pin bowling I remember and uh, I dropped a bowling ball on I think my t- one of my tiny little fingers when I was six and it may have broken it um, so that was my first skiing related industry injury in a, in a bowling alley. <laughs> I say, um, nowhere near the slopes, but is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, oh. um, that, but that's literally my first time skiing. And then it, I was lucky enough that that kept happening for quite a few years. So uh, with your dad being involved in doing ski trips and everything like that, um, you know, were the other, other trips that he was involved with? I mean, what, what kind of drew you to, to snow sports overall? Is it, was it, was it that first trip when you were six? So, it's 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 a bit tough for it. I think um so but yeah as I mentioned both my folks were uh, PE teachers and my dad ran trips of all different types football and rugby and um and, and then skiing was the one that he managed to sneak the family onto um which you know, kudos for him to take the opportunity um my brother is the team sports person in the family he was he's retired now but he was pro rugby for a little bit he's a big lad and the team sports thing suited him. I think I've always been a slightly more individual sports kind of based person and skiing at the time was probably the only thing that I was given the opportunity to do that was a, or that I found interesting that was, was a, you know, a one person activity. Um, and then one thing I do seem to remember, because I was always in ski lessons when we were on these school ski trips, I was only going for one week a year and it would be January and then there'd be nothing for another 51 weeks, but I seem to have got better without skiing in that year uh it was almost like my brain had tried to figure out you know everything I'd been taught in that week I'd had a year for my brain to try and figure it out and then the next time around I was a little bit better um and in my head probably way better than everyone else but um (laughs) whether that was true or not is a completely different thing um and that that kind of stuck really and then as I got a little bit older uh the ski trips from my dad started to stop because he stopped doing them but then he started to try and run one with friends because I think he quite enjoyed the you know the organizing bit so I went on them um, and then he got a little they got a little bit more money and we went on some family trips so it just kind of evolved so you know, from one week to two weeks here but I say that I'm really lucky with the parents I got to get me into these kind of things because they're both teachers they weren't exactly millionaires but I think they just really enjoyed spending money on doing rather than necessarily having you know they, they, yeah. we, we had a great we great show great childhood but it was just a case of I think he'd, they'd always much rather try and um, pay for an experience rather than necessarily for, for a have which has yeah. meant that I ended up being able to go in the car to France more often than than I probably should have been able to otherwise 
Oh, that's, that's really, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful memory. And I think it, the other nice thing about that is, you know, it's their life experiences, you know, you're, you're the, obviously at the time didn't have iPhones, but the computer games would, would, would change and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you, you I know, remember my first Game Boy on the trips like that. I'd sit with a Game Boy and Pokemon for hours when I was 11 That's years why old. you remember so, yeah. the trips. <laughs> exactly. The gaming. Um, um, yeah. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I, mean, I think that, you know, memories and those sort of experiences, I think, you know, from, from chatting to so many different uh, people across the podcast, that seems to be that, that the connection or of, of having a, a family trip and that experience of, of spending definitely. time, uh, that, that's definitely been a, a, an overarching theme of everything. And um, you, you mentioned then, uh, obviously you got bitten by the bug, uh, enjoyed it. And yeah. then uh, you, you said at the age of 18, you decided to up sticks, head across the pond to, uh, to uh, Canada. Yeah. And much uh, to my mum's horror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How long were you there for? On and off three years. So okay. um, yeah. I, uh, I was doing my A-levels basically, and I didn't want to go to university yet. Um, I saw, um, if you remember, I don't know if you knew about it, but Bunak was um, kind of the company that you went to if you wanted to look at getting a visa. And with the Commonwealth, it's pretty easy to get a visa to go to Canada. And let's be honest, you can drink in Canada at 18, specifically in Alberta, where I was going to, and uh, you can't in America. So uh, that one was a that one was an easy, easy consideration because I was 18. I wanted to kind of run away and go do something different. But um, I wasn't necessarily uh, psyched to go on an organized event. I wanted to see how I could kind of manage. So um, I worked in the summer um save enough money for a flight flights on um uh the canadian affair back then were quite cheap as well i think uh, it was like 200 pounds to get to calgary and free baggage so that was always helpful um i got my visa got my flight flew to Bam- uh, to calgary and, and got a bus to banff where um i had two weeks paid for in a hostel and that was the extent of my um my plan really uh, and uh, the opportunity of an interview not even an interview the chance to in to try and get an interview uh, to work at uh, Sunshine Village. So that was that was the kind of outline plan. Um, first couple of weeks, spent probably way too much money too quickly. Um, and then uh, found myself probably living on porridge before I wanted to. But uh, I got an interview um, to become a lifty, which was pretty much the, I think the standard for what a lot of people kind of look for. Um, my now friend, Leanne, who was running those interviews, she was listening to me and, and suggested maybe a different job might be worth trying for, which was uh, called Trail Crew. Um, and uh, I, had, I had no idea what that was, um, but it sounded interesting anyway. Um, effectively, it was a lot more skiing and a lot less standing around. So that uh, suited me a little bit better, but I started to interview for that, um, which uh, I did get, I got that job. Um, and so from there, kind of that's, that's kind of how the start of my actual career as such in skiing started. Uh, I managed to um, stick it out for a while. So basically the job there, um, trail crew is you're effectively a snow farmer. So uh, it's Sunshine Village where I uh, applied to work at. It's in the Banff National Park. You can only make certain amount of fake, uh, sorry, um, you know, um, fake snow. Yeah, you can only do certain amount of, because uh, it can only take so much water from the streams. Um, so as opposed to some places in Europe where there's not quite such the same um, kind of restrictions, uh, they have a very finite amount of snow they can make. However, most of the skiing area is above tree line and it's windy. So it's a little bit like Scotland. When the snow falls, how do you keep it on the mountain? Um, so uh, if anyone's ever been there, they probably would notice people like me were in a black uniform uh, using lots of snow fencing, 35 kilometers worth, I think, um, which we were constantly 
farming. So moving it around, um, trying to capture snow so the peace bashes could come along, widen the run and short, really short and simply, you can take a run from 50 meters wide to 500 meters wide with manual labor and using fences over a period of time. So that's, that was the kind of job that that meant in the autumn, uh, really hard labor, you know, four or 5,000 calories a day, marching up and down. And really, you know, it was a, it was a first year out. There was a definite experience. I think the coldest day in the first year was minus 40 when I was still working. And, you know, I've been cold before, but nothing, nothing like that. Um, which was, um, yeah, it was definitely a, an eye opener, but yeah, that was, that was my first taste. Um, and then came back to UK, went to university, and then realized I wanted to go back again. And the financial crash happened. So uh, what what better reason to keep going back? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. I mean, if you've uh, outdoors, you can kind of enjoy it. And if you can, uh, well, hopefully by by the third time or second or third time you went back, you weren't living just on porridge. But uh, yeah, no, nope, uh, I got a bit better at managing my life for sure. Um, my skiing got a bit better. Um, I had a, a partner with me then at the time, which was also Celts rather than just being 18 single. And like you say, I think uh, I needed some new skis. That was one thing I remember from my first season out there. And uh, uh, I was trying to, I, I, my parents had funds that were my, it was my money, but they refused to let me have it. So they kept it probably quite sensibly in the UK. And then if I needed it, I'd message them and they would happily send it. However, I told my mum I needed some new skis. And she was like, you don't, you've got skis. I was like, They've been cheese grated already because of the rocks. And I didn't want to say, and I just want these, but really I did just need some skis. And it was a new, it was a pair of K2 Seths, um, which were pretty iconic ski at the time. And uh, it took a bit of to and fro to get the money to come over. But that was one of the times where I think I lived off porridge for breakfast and tea for a week and a half because I'd taken the money out of my bank to pay. It was, I bought them from someone at the hill in cash. And uh, I was like, I have no, there was nothing. So uh, it went down to, yeah, skis were skis over food at one point. <laughs> so I got well, all, better in time. I say it all worked out for you though. So, um, mm. but um, so you obviously you did did some did some time uh, doing doing um, um, trail crew uh, in 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 Banff or Banff yep. and everything like that. Yeah. And then obviously you came back and, and everything. So how did you then work your way to where you are now with Nick? sure. So um, after living out, uh, well, 2013 was my last season out in Canada. And yeah, I was doing trail crew, but a lot of work with ski patrol. And, and um, I got some really fun times with avalanche stuff here and there. But um, did you blow anything I up? I did. I got to throw some bombs a few times. Yeah. Nice. That's cool. I've, I've, I have thrown dynamite, not necessarily much successfully, but I have thrown it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, that was great. Um but then it was kind of time to head back. Visas kind of put a limit on how long you can do these things. You either make a decision, you're staying and you're getting citizenship or you are uh, kind of coming home. Um, and money as well, you know, living a, a, an Alpine life is great, but it's not always the most um, financially secure. Um, so then moved back here in 2013. I ended up actually with a friend opening a running shop in Sheffield. So I moved back to Sheffield here, where my partner at the time was from. And um, I helped open a running shop. So I started a, a business with someone here. Um, I was the employee. It was his, his business. Um, but then after about a year, I think it kind of became clear that I'd given him as much help as he needed from me. Uh, and it was time to look elsewhere. And I, I found a job with a, a distributor in the UK. Um, and it was the skiing part with Nordica that drew me straight to it. That, um, you know, to be a rep. Now, 
I can talk as, as most people in the industry would, could attest to, but my sales ability wasn't necessarily where I was at. All I knew I was, uh, you know, I was educated and I was enthusiastic and I was more than enthusiastic about skiing with a bit of luck. It might get me somewhere. Um, TKC was the company that uh, the job was for and to work for being a sales rep as I am now where you, I was selling everything to retailers. So um, whether it be the skis or, or whether it was other parts of the company, that was my job. Um, but as a result, that kind of, I got that job, I was very lucky to. And, and my boss for the last eight years was Matt, who owns the company. Um, managed to kind of guide me fairly well, I think. Um, and that's where the relationship with Nordica started. TKC had been distributing it for a lot, for quite a few years before I'd been involved. And then, you know, that is now running up to nine years. So I've been doing it now. So from in my head, I still feel like the newbie, but, um, you know, we're getting on nearly a decade. I've definitely been here a while now. So that's how I first started kind of interacting with Nordica, albeit a, not an arm's length, but in a, in a slightly different um, format as to I do now, but, it did mean I got to meet the people who were at the company and, and try and, you know, I, I knew the product a little bit beforehand, but honestly, I was a skier, skier for skiing more than anything else. So if, if it was made of wood and had a plastic base and it felt right, that was my brain. And then really starting to try and learn why one company over another. And that's where I found myself over time. So that's, yeah, that's pretty much how I ended up in, um, with with Nordica in the first place, but then that's now. So now I run the UK arm as part of my agency, which is wow. uh, scary new, but it's um, that's no, where it's we're exciting, at these days. It's, it's, I mean, that's that's exciting. You know? That's that's amazing. Um, so if we, you know, looking after Nordica UK, <laughs> mm-hmm. really is what mm-hmm. it is. Um, do you, you know, if we reflect back on the on the origins of the brand, I mean, it's sure. uh, take a look beforehand. I think it was started about 1939-ish. Is that about 39? Yeah, yeah. by uh, a couple of gentlemen, the Vacari brothers. They were a, um, they were the, um, like leather salesmen, effectively, mm-hmm. originally. And then they started to make their own um, uh, soft shoes in Montebelluna. Um, Givera is a tiny village outside Montebelluna, northern Italy, where the brand started. But... 39 is obviously just before the start of the war, including the start of the war. In the war, a lot of the kind of um, footwear manufacturers in that part of the world were seconded to make military footwear for the Italian army. And then coming out the end of the war, you know, needed to find uh, another use for their skills. Um, and so uh, the Vicaris um, started to make ski boots, which was leather ski boots. Um, and that's kind of where it started, yeah, in the, in the late 30s, but ski boots properly from about 1950 onwards. Isn't that amazing? Because, you know, Nordic has been one of those brands that's been around for, for a long time. Yeah. And I think it's some, one of the interesting things about, uh, you know, doing these, these podcasts as well is doing a little bit of digging and research, you know, myself into, into finding out a bit about the brands and mm. not realizing that um, it had been started back in 39, say, you know, boots from the 50s. You know, you kind of, um, I hadn't really gra- hadn't really thought that it, it was that old. So, uh, and that that's amazing. So, um, obviously, boots being manufactured from the fifties, uh, and you know, you guys are well, very well known. I mean, that's probably been the, the 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 what you're known for, really. Isn't it? I mean, full of full of full of first as well. I mean, um, you know, making leather boots, but then they were the first company to laminate plastic over uh, over the liner, uh, aluminium buckles, inventing the flex index that people kind of use today. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, don't get us started on that one. Yeah, but uh, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, they invented. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that um, Nordica was always an innovator in that mindset, and and coming up with at a time when 
skiing was getting more and more popular, you know, coming up with new ways of making products. And I say I've known for boots at one point, I think 30% of all of the boots worldwide were Nordica boots, which yeah. there was less yeah. brands back then. But, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think the, it'd be fascinating. I think, you know, if you spoke to people of a certain generation, I'm sure yeah. there's so many, so many skiers that at some point in their ski career, have owned uh, a pair of Nordica boots. I mean, I, yeah. I I think back to I think I had at least one or two pairs myself. Um, my, my dad definitely had some in the early in the early early nineties. I remember his red Nordica yeah. boots. Yeah, it's it's uh, so it's kind of it's it's amazing to you know to think that the impact that it, that it's had, and then um, obviously, uh, you know, the Doberman franchise, which is you know a very you know popular boot sure. as well. But you have uh, you know skis are, are kind of obviously the, the other half of the, the same coin. Yeah, and but those are still relatively relatively new, and uh, I wonder if you could perhaps give us a bit of insight of that, and I'll tell you a little story about Nordica skis as well when you when you jump. When okay, you jump well, back. hopefully, hopefully, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I say the right thing then. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny you say relatively new. It is relative compared to how old the, you know, how long they've been making boots. So I think we're in our eighty second year as a company mm-hmm. um, this year. But uh, skis started in the nineties, really, um, and I think the main thing. So it was around the time the Benetton family owned Nordica. Uh, which is where, if anyone remembers back, like Benetton race cars had Nordica mm-hmm. on the side of it on the Formula One. It was just a mad I, period. Yeah. I didn't know that. There was there was a different level of sponsorship going on at, at that period of time, I think. Um, but um, skis, I think, seemed like the obvious choice uh, in that there was a very well-known boot brand. It needed a, a ski to go with it. And that's where the kind of mindset came from. Uh, and it, I think it was just a very simple, like, not necessarily a math equation, but it was like, well, of course we should have it. And then that's where it was, you know, it came out of. Um, and then when the Zanata family bought the, which who owned the Technica group, bought Nordica in the early thousand, that then, you know, continued and, and grow, grew from there. Oh, fair enough. The, um, yeah, I, to this day, I remember, I remember seeing the first pair of Nordica skis ever. Uh, and that was in, uh, in Silver Star um, in, in British Columbia. And, uh, and, um, we we were out there doing a, a, a test type thing, and I remember seeing seeing this guy come into the in lift line and with, mm. with Nordica branded skis on it, and having this right conversation with him about uh, you know about about the skis because it was the first time anybody had ever seen these, and that yeah. would have been, I guess probably in the January, uh, I guess yeah mid mid nine mid nineties or something like that. So um, okay. yeah, but it was fascinating to see this I, I still remember just seeing this having this conversation about seeing nordica skis like the first time we ever sees it they're they're known for boots they're known, and well, I, obviously they're i love skis. i love moments like that though i mean i know i work for nordica and i will talk about them until the cows come home but I, i'm a ski nerd at heart as well and from any company when you see something you've never seen before firstly i'm like why do i know about it already because i think of myself as, as knowing these types of stuff but then you when you meet someone in a small village somewhere that's got something that you just it's just a fascinating thing yeah. to ask like what is it who what are they how do they how do they work and, and it's, yeah, i love that do, do they slide, do they slide? <laughs> yeah that's great I, I found a new brand i had no idea existed two days ago um and i'm already fascinated by them just to know what they do oh so, cool yeah. brilliant um so you, you touched on the point you said obviously you're part of uh, the technical group and yep. um 
So uh, perhaps you can, you know, for people who don't know, perhaps share with us uh, what the group is and who's involved in, in, in the group, not obviously down to the individuals. But no, no. Involved in the group so I it, it, it kind of comes back to the Zanata family. So Giancarlo, who is uh, the, the kind of founder of a lot of, well, of the Technica group, um, purchased brands that he thought and companies he thought were, you know, either going somewhere or could be something going forward. And um, when, um, when, the Technica group were making ski boots, Technica, which is a sister brand of ours. Um, and obviously, we, you know, Nordica has boots and skis. Then in the mid-thousands, Blizzard, the ski manufacturer, got bought as well. So the Technica Blizzard was a brand grouping and, the, and the Nordica was a brand grouping. Um, they're different. There's, you know, different design teams, different uh, kind of ethoses. But the bonus of and the power of a group is that you are able to utilize you know, um, and streamline production, sourcing raw materials. Um, I mean, not many people necessarily know, but there's not that many, you know, producers of wood for ski cores uh, mm. in the world, because if, you, if you're a timber mill, why on earth would you make ski cores when you can build houses? So actually there's only really one or two ski core producers in the whole world. Um, by having two brands that are using the same production facilities, then you can start to streamline. Now, what you do with that wood is an entirely, you know, subjective to each brand, but having that, um, that strength to be able to, you know, use similar production techniques uh, or, or uh, similar same logistics, all of those kind of things is, is, you know, one, if one's having a good year, one might be having a bad year, but then it's helped by the one that's having a good year and vice versa. Mm. But, you know, beyond, and, and you have strength as well long term uh, as a result, which the investment that brands need means that, you know, one might be helping from the other at one point in time. And it's a really... It's a good way of getting ideas crisscrossing, but without it being um, everyone following the same plan. You know, if you go to um, headquarters, which I'm lucky to go to these days, the two teams, while they might interact, they have their own ideas, their own directions, and with to an extent from the, the powers above are, are, are left to it because you know you need competition as well. Mm. So that, that's yeah, yeah. That, that's and then it then drives where the whole, all of the brands are forced to really think what would work for the group as well. So you have to, um, you know, you, when it comes to sustainability and things like that, there's a drive from the upon high, which means that everyone is pulling in the right direction. So it's yeah. um, hopefully it means you can have one message sometimes that can cover a lot of different areas. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we might touch on sustainability a little sure. bit later on, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's quite interesting because, you know, sometimes when you have when you're part of groups like that uh mm -hmm. the uh unless there's you know distinction sometimes you might think oh it's just the same it's just same product is branded differently but it's it's yeah. nice to hear that obviously you know both brands have their uh own unique set of values own unique set of uh, direction and are kind of left to get on with this that's 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 quite good i think definitely um it's one of those like Using your individuality where relevant, but then also remembering that there's always, you know, sometimes a benefit to share certain ideas um, or certain practices. And if you both benefit from it, then definitely. But equally, there is no point the two companies cannibalizing each other's business because yeah. that just doesn't make any sense. So um, that's, you yeah. know, you need that different individualities. Yeah, totally. Um, and speaking in terms of individuality, what makes a Nordica boot a Nordica boot? Um, I think I was trying to think about this like really specifically, um, but it probably needs to be less specific. The biggest thing for a Nordic boot is the out-of-the-box fit. People should put it on and instantly think, that's nice. 
um, which first and foremost has got to be the kind of place to be. I think if you're going to sell boots and you're going to have people wanting to a have a good time in them and come back to them again, you have to have that initial um, relationship with it. So from a, a boot side of things, definitely the out of the box fit and, and having a, a confidence that it's reliable, it's been made well, it will do whatever you want it to do. And that doesn't mean it could be anything from, you know, if I jump off a cliff in these pair, are they going to perform for me well enough through to, am I going to wear them for a week? And then are my feet going to be in agony mm-hmm. um, on a, on a holiday where the skiing part of it may only be a, you know, a portion, you might be having to wear them to stand around for a lot of the time. Um, so having a, it's a classic product that, um, definitely dependable and you will enjoy wearing that's that's i think what makes a, a nordic boot what it is definitely and uh we say a bit of a classic uh, product do you feel that there's kind of like a um uh, a thread or an ethos of, of the brand that kind of runs through all the products and if so what do you what do you feel that is um It'll probably lead to your next question a little bit, but I think about nine years ago, they, uh, the company really refocused really on its core, really trying to think about what, it's this question you just asked, what is Nordica? What is the brand there for? So the ethos is very much like stick to our plan. Whatever our plan is means that you're going to at least lead in that direction rather than follow. If you have a plan and if the plan is, it, it has to have a purpose. So innovation is great, but having innovation for a purpose um, and then, sticking to that plan religiously mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you have amazing ideas but they can you know if they draw away from the brand then deciding not necessarily to go that way um, mm-hmm. which we you know we've got some products in the market at the moment which no one else is doing and and it's ended up in our way being it's been a favor to us for sure um, but the i think the ethos is definitely it's, it's trust you know it's mm-hmm. trust that we have a plan that we're going on the right direction and that both the retailers who you know want to stock our products but then obviously the most important that the end consumer can trust that we've really thought through what it is we're trying to mm-hmm. trying to make and trying to provide so that it has a real a reason it's not just innovation for the sake of it mm-hmm. um, and that that it gives you a heritage that's you know to have an 80-year heritage you have to have been building stuff that people wanted to wear once upon a time and keep going back to and back to and mm-hmm. refer to their family their kids you know friends that to have that um you need definitely that that reliability and that trust that people think that you are building something that they want to interact with and will work for them it's that um you know, i think the fact that you know you have something that as we kind of touched on at the beginning, so many people have used the product as well. Sure. You know, that, that there's that um, familiarity, familiar, people know. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, but, but you can, you can lose that as well. You know, yeah. if you, if you, you look at the biggest brands in the world and, and I, I spent time when, when Nordic was, was re, re kind of focusing again, looking at, the most iconic brands that you can think of, whether it be watches or cars, people know where that car is for 40 straight years. You know, it looks like that car. It might change a little bit here at times, but there's no doubt it's that car. Porsche is your perfect example. Mm. You know, a 911, yeah, it looks different now, but it still, you can see that heritage, that lineage from start to finish. And from that, that's where you get that identity that sticks, having that longevity and people seeing it again and again and really getting that reminder of, of what it stands for mm. and yes sometimes having new ideas here and there for sure but we're a brand that's a black background with a red logo mm. and um 
you know, if you're going to change that, there has to be a good reason to do so. Yeah. You, you talk about, um, you know, obviously heritage and lineage and, and uh, over the years. And um, I'm wondering from your perspective, I know you've always been in the company for, let's call it a decade, but uh, sure. what do you think has been the, the obviously tons of, there's tons of successes, uh, but what do you think has perhaps been the biggest setback that the company's potentially had? Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Legends of the Brand. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Listen, drop us an email at info at legendsofthebrand.com. That's info at legendsofthebrand.com if you'd like to reach out and get in touch. And make sure to check out the show notes also at all the W's at legendsofthebrand.com. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye.